Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This is the Roy Green Show podcast. Uh, It's my honor to speak with Major Mark Campbell. Major Campbell fought for this country um, in Afghanistan. He was with the Princess Patricia Canadian Light Infantry, and he lost both of his legs to an IED. And we've spoken to Major Campbell previously, and particularly about the Equitas lawsuit that is ongo- ongoing in uh, in British Columbia, where we, the federal government is going to court to try to make its case that it doesn't have any social contract with the men and women who are in uniform. Major Campbell is one of the... Uh, individuals involved in that lawsuit. There's so many parameters to Remembrance Day, Major Campbell, but most important, thank you so much for your service to this country, and thank you to your wife as well. She, I understand, was also a member of the Canadian Armed Forces. That, that, that's correct, uh, and uh, thank you thank you so much for that acknowledgement. It means, uh, it means a great deal, not just today, but, uh, but every day. Remembrance Day in Ottawa, if uh, I recall during our conversation, you mentioned this was the first Remembrance Day for you in Ottawa? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, my first opportunity to attend a, na- uh, attend a national ceremony. Um, so that that in and of itself was pretty exciting uh, for myself and uh, some of my uh, close compatriots who have flown out from uh, well, Chilliwack and uh, Logan Lake, BC, and so on and so forth. So yeah, we we got a little contingent here, and uh, it, it's been a wonderful opportunity to tie our attendance at the national ceremony into our 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 felt need to to basically perform a, a, a one last public service announcement and give the government fair warning that they better get it right with the return to the pensions this month or next month, or uh, all bets are off. Well, you uh, you and your co- comrades in, in the military, you voluntarily joined, and you voluntarily gave of yourself, and you sacrificed so much of your life, mm-hmm. and uh, so many uh, have not come home in the various wars, including the two great wars Canada has participated in. When you get to a, a day like today, to Remembrance Day, what is the particular significance to you personally? And, and Major Campbell, do you remember specifically why it is that you decided to become a member of the military? Um, yeah, the meaning of the day. Um, well, for me, to be honest with you, Roy, every day is, is Remembrance Day. I mean, all I got to do is glance down, I see my missing legs, and, and it reminds me of exactly um, what uh, what sacrifices is, is 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 all about and what service to to one's country uh, potentially entails. So um, for me, every day is Remembrance Day. But days like today um, tends to focus my thoughts specifically towards those uh, who I know who made the ultimate sacrifice and and didn't come home, um, at least didn't come home um, walking and talking. So um, that, that's where my thoughts turn. I mean, I when I think of all the people I know that I've lost. Or we've lost to uh, not just combat um, combat operations and combat deaths, but um, more poignantly, perhaps, to suicide after the fact. Um, lives that could have been saved, lives that could have been salvaged, that 
that have been lost in the aftermath of the war because people didn't receive the treatment that they needed and when they needed it. That's as much a part of the story as almost everything else, any other component. Because when, when somebody comes home, when you come home from, a, from uh, fighting for this country and fighting for the values of this country or defending others from others, and you're injured and wounded in the process, there's a realistic expectation that when you get home, your country's going to take care of you. There is. Or there should be. There was. There was. <laughs> there, there, there is to a certain extent, but it has certainly um, been blunted by the, the, the rather harsh reality of what our new generation of veterans face after uh, the 1st of April 2006 with the... Uh, legislation known as the new veterans charter the the lump sum the taking away of the lifetime uh, military dis- or medical disability pensions um yeah it's uh, it, it's been it's been an ugly 11 years since they adopted the new veterans charter i mean i didn't find out that my 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 um financial compensation had been reduced by 40 percent over my lifetime compared to the former pension act until I was in my hospital bed watching my left leg get shorter by an inch every other day as they shaved the bone back uh, to try to make a viable stump. So really bad time and place to find out that you've been financially stiffed on top of being, uh, well, being crippled for life. So uh, not, a, not, a, not a pretty situation. Now, Major Campbell, talk to us, please, about what it is that this federal government is, is doing, that the previous federal government was also doing, to, uh, to the members of the military who come home are wounded, injured, and require require help. The, the The fundamental message from Ottawa has been and continues to be, we have no social contract with you regardless of what Sir Robert Borden said in 1917. So talk to us, please, about what's going on with the Equitas lawsuit and what that particular position by the federal government does to people in the military emotionally. Sure. The um, Well, the Equitas lawsuit is, is based on the fundamental disparity uh, the, the lack of justice and fairness between the former Pension Act, which was in effect from 1909 until 2006. And that Pension Act was good enough for all those years to take care of Canada's war veterans. And it was by no means excessively generous, but it did provide financial security for life in the form of a medical disability pension, plus whatever military pension you had paid into over the course of your career. So you had dual income streams. Under the so-called New Veterans Charter, which came into effect on the 1st of April 2006, in the middle of the war, without telling any of us busy fighting the war, it reduced our disability compensation by approximately 40% over the lifetime of the individual. So um, what does that mean? It means a lump sum in lieu of a lifetime uh, disability pension. The lump sum on average is about $40,000. The maximum is 360000 but you've got to be missing a couple limbs like I am in order to qualify for the maximum. Um, for the vast majority of our disabled soldiers, um, veterans, they're expected to make a still successful transition to some form of civilian life, civilian career. So they don't receive anything but that lump sum and a handshake. For those who are seriously disabled, like myself, we receive the lump sum, uh, which is tax free, and then we receive a, bun- uh, a series of taxable benefits, which um, are supposed to provide for our financial or our income loss. Problem is those benefits are subject to regulation and changed by the government on a whim if they want to tighten their belts, um, and they don't take the form of a, of a real pension. A real pension is tax-free. A real pension has no clawback of your military pension, which is the first thing they claw back away from me um, as part of my disability settlement. 
Um, so I don't see my military pension. It's invisible to me. It's part of my income and uh, part of my overall income. And uh, and uh, the government, um, uh, let me think, there's three, three aspects. Tax-free, uh, the government can't mess with it on a whim because it has to be legislatively addressed uh, in order to change the rates and the fact there's no clawback of the military pension. Those are sort of the three qualifying um, parameters of a, of a true pension. Unfortunately, what we understand the government is proposing for this, so, uh, for the, the Prime Minister's oft-promised reinstatement of a lifetime pension, uh, we're expecting something that is going to be substantially less than the former Pension Act, which is going to leave us with, again, two standards of veteran. So we'll have the ridiculous situation, ludicrous really, of two soldiers, same war, same injuries, fundamentally different financial compensation packages for life. How does that make any sense? Is that fair? No, nothing of what you've said to me is fair, whether you've said it today or said it in the past, the way that you're being treated and other military members, the members of the Canadian Armed Forces, are being treated by successive federal governments as embarrassing, disturbing, and has to be just absolutely alarming to, frustrating. Yeah, and frustrating and, uh, and, and to, alarming to members who have lost as much as, you know, uh, like, like you've lost or, or, well, or others have members, lost. It's, it's, Roy, the, 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 the really, the part that hurts, the part that hits me in the heart is my family. Yeah. It, it, this affects the families as much as it affects the yeah. serving members. Yeah. And maybe most Canadians don't realize that when, when, a, when a member of the family serves in the Canadian Armed Forces, everybody in the family serves in the Canadian Armed Forces because mm-hmm. you get moved around. Uh, you're subject to certain pay grades, and, you know, on and on it goes. You live uh, the military life, military families, military brats, children raised in the military environment. I mean, they have a, a pretty unique lifestyle, and they make a lot of sacrifices along the way, uh, including, you know, spouses holding down, uh, becoming a single spouse while, the, while the, the uniform member goes away for six, seven, eight months on a, on a mission. And, uh, yeah, it's tough on the families. So when you get an injury... Uh, a, a career-ending, uh, life-threatening injury like that, guess what? The entire family's along for the ride. Yeah, it's a life-changer. And, and, yeah, and, and, the, and it, it turned my family dynamic on its head. I mean, I was in a, I'm in a wheelchair for life. I can't swing a hammer, do the things I used to do. I have to throw money at every problem that comes along the, the pipeline to do with my home or, or what have you. So being crippled is very expensive on the first part. Um, that's why most disabled people are on some form of uh, social assistance and, 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 and live at or below the low-income cutoff is because being, being handicapped is actually very expensive. Um, medical equipment's a bit of a racket, you know. You pay $7 for a leaky urinal, like, man, come on, give me a break. But that, that be that as it may, those are just some of the, 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 the you know, the, the, the day-in and day-out aggravations of, being, of right. being handicapped. But the family's along for the ride. And, you know, to show its appreciation for what the family members do, the government of Canada eliminated all of the family benefits that were available under the former Pension Act. And the new Veterans Charter has absolutely no family recognition except for the recently um, recently implemented and in, 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 in increased um, uh, family caregiver um, recognition allowance, which is $1,000 a month. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Major Campbell, uh, mm-hmm. what was that, how did that day begin? Um, that day was one of those days where you probably should have just stayed in bed, but <laughs> be that as it may, 
Um, the actual operation, I was, I was, I was, it was 2008, uh, summer of 2008, first of June, and I was mentoring the uh, Afghan National Army and uh, teaching them um, basically on-the-job training in combat operations, um, so teaching as we, as we went. And um, we were doing a series of village clearance operations that day, looking for IED manufacturing facilities, um, bomb-making factories. And uh, it was just one of those days where, where, where uh, the, the fog, what we call the fog of war, the friction, the, the Murphy's Law was kicking in left, right, and center. And it was just, it was a, it was a crazy day. I mean, to include uh, an Afghan in, in, a, in a single file uh, line of uh, marching men who, who was playing with the safety on his AK-47 and put three rounds into his own left thigh and got a femur bleed and had to be evacuated. You know, that just crazy, stupid stuff happening left, right, and center that day, uh, uh, coming across huge drug manufacturing facilities, uh, but but nothing to do with the IEDs. And then, um, basically, uh, a Canadian platoon that was providing security to our right side, protecting our right side as we uh, worked with the Afghans in the villages, they came into a a heavy uh, contact, uh, troops in contact with uh, a sizable Taliban force. And uh, they had a sergeant who was shot through the arm and the leg and uh, was going to, uh, he was going into shock and he was assessed as, 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 as going to die if they couldn't evacuate him in a timely fashion. We were the only other force available to essentially go to the rescue, take over the fight, uh, so that that Canadian platoon could break contact with the enemy and, 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 and withdraw and, and take care of its casualties. Um, so we were en route, literally running to the sound of the guns, and uh, we were ambushed en route when we did a, a security halt just short of uh, what we thought was contact with the, the bad guys. And as they are wont to do, uh, they, they, they performed what they call what we call a complex ambush. We would do the same thing to them if we had the opportunity to do so. They picked a good spot of ground where they knew we would stop. They picked a spot of ground where they knew the leadership would probably be in the center because they're not stupid. They know our, our tactics. And uh, they, uh, they waited uh, for me. They, they identified me as leadership, wearing a different uniform and talking on the radio. Um, and they waited until I walked across a certain piece of ground where they had a buried bomb. Dozens of other people had already walked across that ground and uh, nothing. But uh, my turn came along, and when I stepped on that certain patch of dirt, they pulled the trigger and blew me up. And that, that initiated a complex ambush with uh, us being hit by three sides, from prepared positions with uh, PKM machine guns and uh, rocket-propelled grenades. So it was, uh, I won't won't use cuss words, but it was a bad day at the office. It it got ugly real quick. Um, We gave the good news right back to them, which was good. Um, The soldiers performed brilliantly under fire, uh, including rescuing me and saving my life and getting the tourniquets on my legs, uh, both of which needed double tourniquets because the femoral arteries were bleeding uh, the left leg was gone above the knee. It was vaporized. The right leg was hanging off by a few threads. So it was a bit of a mess. Uh, I remember one soldier standing over me and going, oh, my God, what are we supposed to do with this? I thought, that's not what I need to hear. No. But, <laughs> yeah, right. Such is life, right? I mean, that's just that's well, nature. Major they, Campbell. They saved my life. It took a long time. Sorry, I don't want to drag this out. But uh, just to finish off, it was about uh, a 90-minute over Hill and Dale. Uh, running gun battle to get us out of there, and it was a it was a it was a bit of a dog's breakfast. Bad day at the office. It is, it is amazing to listen to. It's disturbing, uh, but that's as you would tell me. That's war. What you don't expect is the treatment that you received when you came home, and that's where the objection has to be raised by the people of Canada in support 
of the members of the Canadian Armed Forces. Major Campbell, it's always an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much, and particularly on Remembrance Day. All the very best to you, sir. Thank you for your service. Well, Roy, thank you so much for your time. Um, I really appreciate talking to you. You're a, you're a, you're a true supporter of the, the men and women in uniform and out of uniform. And uh, on this Remembrance Day, I just want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me and getting our story out there. It's, it's, it's greatly Any, appreciated. Anytime, Major. Thank you again. All right. You have All a good one. All the very best. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Major Mark Campbell from the PPCLI. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. With me is Andy. Andy's a listener to this program, and a few weeks ago, we aired a segment on white privilege, and Andy called in, and we talked for a bit. And after that, I got an email from Andy, and he joins us uh, on the show now. Andy, thanks for getting in touch with me. And uh, what was it about the show and about the conversation that got you uh, determined to take on political correctness? Thanks for uh, having me on, Roy. And I just want to start by uh, extending gratitude to all our veterans on, on Remembrance Day. Yes, sir. Um, uh, so what got me going in terms of that? There's been a number of times that things have happened at my children's school. I have two young children. Um, that have made me raise an eyebrow sometimes, and I just haven't said anything, and I, I, I kind of regret having not said anything at that time, and I can, I can tell you what some of them are later, but this particular incident was more about, you know, the kind of attack on Halloween that has, has happened in our school system and, and how it is, is not acceptable anymore or we're going to try and sanitize it. And my daughter is a very creative person. She likes... Uh, dabbling in makeup like a lot of young girls do and she likes scary things and you know she was you know pretty close to tears you know and a little bit a little bit upset she came home the one day and she said dad we're not going to be able to i'm not going to be able to wear my costume to school because it's too scary so that kind of got me going after we had uh, spoken on the phone i said no i'm not going to let it go and i uh sent an email to the principal's secretary got ignored the first time, said, no, I'm not going to let it go. And I picked up the phone and called, and she said, well, he'll get back to you. And he didn't get back to me. day later, I sent another email and another phone call. Oh, he'll get back to you. And another phone call, I finally got through to him. And I had a long talk with him. And, and lo and behold, uh, three days after I started the process, he sent out a, a communication to all parents clarifying what the costume policy was, which was, uh, not as drastic as uh, was originally told to the children on a, on a morning announcement. It wasn't even communicated to the parents. Well, good for you. So something that, uh, that we talked about or you heard on the air on that program or during your call made you decide you were no longer going to just sit by as political correctness evolved and revolved around you. And when your daughter was told in school you won't be able to wear your costume, you said, I don't think so. Yeah, and I, I think there's a bit of a culture war going on. I hate that term sometimes, Roy. But uh, I think, and I have friends who now I say that they're concerned about things that happen at their school, and they say uh, something, and I, I kind of go, well, yeah, that's concerning. Why didn't you say something? Well, I don't want to rock the boat. No, you have to say something because uh, a lot of things that are going on in school, and I'll, I'll tell you one of them that, ha- that really irks me, and I'm still going to have a conversation about that, is that one of the teachers in our, uh, in our school has, and this is grade one, mind you, we're talking grade ones, has a PETA, uh, uh, People for Ethical uh, Treatment of Animals, one of their campaign posters posted on the wall of their classroom. And when I saw it the first time, I had to do a double take. And I'm thinking, pardon me, Uh, that's a real political statement up there Mm -hmm. for, for 
kids who are probably about five or six years of age, and I don't think that's acceptable. So that's that's in my crosshairs, and I, there's a couple other things that I've kind of uh, brought up as well in terms of uh, what needs to be addressed at the school. And I think it, it's just it's a social it's a social uh, justice warriors that uh, attitude that's going on in schools. And I think it needs to be kind of brought back into perspective and back to the middle a little bit. Well, good for you. And uh, what would you say to the people who are listening now? Who say, well, say, well, I can identify with that. That's going on in my kid's school. Uh, how how good does it feel to be able to go through to the principal and, in fact, be able to, after they were reluctant to speak with you, be able to get them to change the program? Well, what I would say to them, and I said it to my friend just yesterday because he was complaining about something, and I said, well, pick up the phone and and make sure you're heard. Don't, don't just grumble about it because it's only going to get worse if we allow this kind of... Uh, culture in the schools, what's going on in the schools to continue. It'll continue to push it away from what we think is reasonable, what parents think is reasonable. And if you want to be silent about it, you know, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to find that it's, it's, a, it's gone a long way, the, the one way, and you're going to have mm-hmm. a hard, hard time swinging it back. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's ludicrous, really, for anybody to get up and say to children who, for, for eons, have enjoyed on Halloween costumes and tell them they can't go as a scary goblin or whatever um, because it, whatever reason the principal came up with, there was no consultation, as you said, with parents. It was an edict that was handed down by the administration, and when he was the parent called, they wouldn't talk to you until you persisted. Yeah, and uh, like I say, I think my first uh, first problem I had with it was the fact that it was communicated to the children, and these are elementary school children. Yeah. And the reason that was given to my daughter, and she's only 10, so you know I've got to take her at face value, was they thought it would scare the younger younger children too much. And I said, I thought to myself, well, what do you? How are you protecting these kids when they go out trick or treating at night? I don't think you're able to kind of censor somebody's costume <laughs> out on the street. They're going to be. <laughs> They're going to be impacted by that out on the street. They're going to see the scary costumes. And, and you know what? It's a teaching moment for parents. And that's what's lost in schools now. Those teaching moments uh, are being taken away from parents where you can tell kids, listen, Halloween is supposed to be fun. You know, you're going to see scary ca- uh, characters out there. But it's not real. It's all in fun. And you get some candy at the end of it. Andy, thank you for letting me know that you were going to react and, and take the situ- situations like this into hand. Protect your kids and challenge those who say political correctness is the way to go. Good for you. Uh, I'm glad we had the show had a little something to do with it. And uh, let me know what happens with that Peter uh, poster, would you? I absolutely will. Like I say, that's next on my crosshairs. Okay. Thanks, Andy. Thanks very much. All the very best to you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I've had the pleasure of speaking with Mubin Sheikh on a, on a number of occasions on this program. He was radicalized as a young Muslim in Canada and uh, subsequently studied Islam in Syria and decided this was not the way that he should live his life. He is today acknowledged as a CSIS and RCMP undercover operative during the Toronto 18 terrorist plot and an expert on the issue of radicalizing and terrorism. He's an international expert and uh, two weeks ago was invited to speak at the United Nations Security Council on the uh, issue of children in war. And uh, Mubin, I also was on his, I check his Twitter account quite regularly, and uh, the other day he was responding some, to some tweets from people who are just trying to 
be antagonistic for the opportunity or the chance or the because they could be antagonistic and uh, what Mubin uh, repeated or replied with was can't say it enough you engage in divisive rhetoric you're doing exactly what the terrorists want Mubin it's good to talk to you again and the book is Undercover Jihadi right? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the introduction, and I wanted to, of course, reinforce the Remembrance Day aspect. Uh, I was an Army cadet growing up as a kid. You know, I I did a lot of, uh, I saw that as a protective factor in my life, okay, and so why I didn't go all out and become a terrorist, per se. What I did is, and even in my now present adult life, I defaulted back to that time when I had stability in my life, right, and it was the Army cadets, and so... You know, my kids just actually did the Remembrance Day Parade today. Uh, this has been my life, like, since I've been born and raised there, you know. And I know people know me from the 2006 Toronto 18 case, but even 10 years ago, you know, I saw this stuff happening, right? And that's one of the reasons why I'm so relevant is because I watched then the rise of ISIS in real time. So now this is why, uh, you know, the U.N. Security Council called me in to explain, you know, what, what are we supposed to do with, you know, children used in war? I want to question that is, and I understand that there was one particular image that I, I saw as well that struck you, and that was the image of a three-year-old with a large knife about to behead his teddy bear. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to give the, you know, real-life personal example of, you know, the, the things that I've seen for the, to put in their head as to what you're dealing with. My comment was, Let's not wait until the child suicide bomber hits at home before we take action. All right. Now, I mean, is it possible? Is it going to happen? I don't know. I mean, the trajectory shows that these groups, you know, are increasingly using children, not just as bombers, but as spies, as other couriers, as other things. And uh, it was just, uh, you know, the Canadian government is also kind of pushing towards this uh, training that what do you do when you're in, in a battlefield, okay, and there are children Right, and in the time watching ISIS rise, they showed images of, of like six, you know, child units, like six children in a tactical unit, you know, doing VIP uh, snatch and grab, you know, arresting people, like doing forward operations. These are like 10, 11, 12 year old children, right, who know how to use weapons. So the question is, how many children can you kill as a professional soldier before you, you're completely messed up when you get back home? Yeah. You know, that's what we gotta. Yeah. So is that was was that the uh, the nucleus of the discussion or the or the or the talk that you had for the Security Council at the UN? Yeah, I was invited independently by France, which is currently the president of the Security Council. Uh, you know, I just gave my spiel, but I was also accompanied with, of course, uh, General Romeo Dallaire. Uh, he was sitting right behind me. Of course, uh, he made he made the joke about having a general sit behind you. You know, watch out. But no, it was, uh, he's very well known because of what happened in Rwanda and the whole child soldiers issue from Africa. Uh, we've seen these, these things have been there before. There's a whole training that needs to go into this, especially now on Remembrance Day. You know, we, we don't want to create more veterans, right? We don't want to create more PTSD. So we need to give them tools and, and concepts and training to prevent that and mitigate that even after it happens. It's terrifying to even contemplate children being trained to be part of a, I mean, be their own little military unit and try to carry out the operations that you mentioned and then have um, actual soldiers confront these kids. Because I remember years ago asking a a, a Toronto police officer who called in on a show 
that we were doing, and there'd been a situation with a 12-year-old who had participated in a holdup of a corner store, and he'd had a fake gun. The little kid had had a fake gun. And I asked the police officer, what would you do in a situation like that? You're called to a, to a robbery. You see a child. The child has got a gun. You can't tell whether it's real or fake. It looks very real to you. What do you do? He started to cry. You move it. It was very quiet for a while, and then he started to cry. This was a, big, this was a cop. So talk about impact. Yeah, I mean, even recently there's been some articles coming out just on the whole discussion on what's happening with veterans and then clawback on 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 privilege or money and you know other yeah. things. Uh it's it's um you know people are seeing that like there there've been a number of reports just on stories even even from the special operations community where you know they they do and see a lot of really intense stuff, you know, and uh that stuff because we are moral human beings and we have systems of values and we have a conscience that's why it haunts us, right? That's what humanizes us, right? It's but interesting. It comes, you, at a price. It, it comes at a price. It's interesting you say that because last weekend, Colonel Steve Day was on the program, the former commanding officer of Joint Task Force 2, and he talked about the special forces operators of the soldiers, the special operators. He said, as long as we have a system in place for our special forces troops where we behave according to the moral standards of Canada, then they'll be able to do their job. Step. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Step yeah. outside all of that, and you're going to have young men, uh, particularly coming back from these forward special operations. Um, uh, right, right. You know, ops, and, 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 and they're going to they're they're going to be they're going to be troubled. They're going to be extremely troubled because they will have done things or potentially been doing things that goes against their entire moral compass. I, I know uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day well. I'm actually doing some training with him um, with Radical Ventures, which is the organization that they're running, which is basically for business students, you know, to do this, yeah. like, you know, intense corporate training, you know, intense, you know, adverse, acti- uh, adverse environments, you know, see how heart rate affects cognitive abilities and all that sort of stuff. But, I mean, there's, there's a bigger point here. There's a bigger point that, uh, mental health uh, assistance is, is should be more than just talk, right? Like, we, we keep hearing about stories, but look, uh, I like the quote, you know, the moral high ground is a great place for our snipers, okay? And, and the yeah. Canadians have a record with, with the snipers That's right. in that regard. 2.1 that miles. That moral yeah. high ground and moral value that we, we are really, we are the greatest country on earth, not in a hyper-nationalistic sense, but, but people know who we are. Like, we have the, that brand of we are good people. And, and we need to invest in that again, I think. Everything people are missing, you know, they get hung up on icons, maybe flags, this and that. But uh, there's a bigger thing that we need to plug into. So I just, just wanted to say that, especially, especially on this day. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Mubin Sheikh is uh, with me. He's the co-author of Undercover Jihadi. He uh, spoke to the United Nations Security Council about children used in war, was invited by France, as you heard. Mubin, when you, uh, when you addressed the UN Security Council, I mean, that's one of the most influential bodies in the world, uh, what did they come back with? Is there, a, is there an, a clear understanding of what's going on with kids being abused in war? And is there any kind of program or sense that, uh, uh, that, that, that there's a methodology to put a stop to this? Well, I mean, ultimately, it requires a, a, a pro-social effort, right? I mean, all of us have to do our part in that sense. I mean, there's accusations, you know, the UN, it's a deliberative body, right? It's a, really a volunteer organization, hopefully to avoid major world wars. Uh, 
and all these discussions happen at very high level, diplomatic levels. Uh, you know, it's funny, there was a moment where Russia and Ukraine kind of went at it very diplomatically, right? And, you know, the way they talked, that, oh, no, Ukraine is foolish to say these things. And so there's a little bit of, uh, little bit of activity in that sense. But, you know, it will remain to be seen if it's, if it's just talk and if, uh, if there are actually political levers that can be pulled and pushed. You know, Sweden spoke, uh, some other countries spoke. And, I mean, they seem to get it and they seem to have their own experiences seeing these sorts of things. But, uh, I mean, look, it's going to require societal-level effort. Otherwise, we're dealing with another generation, uh, you know, of, of violent, radicalized, whatever you want to call it. And it's happening across the board, right? I mean, we're seeing the rise of the far right. I mean, there's whole, uh, you know, far-right jihadi camps in Europe. You know, these things are, are accelerating at a parallel level. You have, you have Muslim extremists, you know, far-right extremists, each one in symbiotic union with the other. That's why my quote, you know, if, if we engage in divisive narratives, we are literally doing exactly what the enemy wants us to do. Divide ourselves, divide our ranks, and we lose. Well, I'm just reading one of your tweets to uh, someone who had um, made that point uh, that required a, a response from you. And you wrote, every time I hear tough guy rhetoric against Islam and Muslims, I wonder if those people realize they've capitulated to the jihadist narrative. That's right. I mean, this whole idea of resisting, okay, against, you know, what's called radical Islamic terrorism, okay, that's the phrase. Now, I like to switch the phrases because I want to be honest that, listen, these guys do claim Islam. So I say terrorists in Islamic costumes, okay, they dress like Muslims, you know, they're killing innocent people, yelling Allahu Akbar, you know, it's like saying Bismillah and eating pork, like you cannot do that, right? The ends don't justify means in Islam. And this is what these guys, the adversary, that is ISIS, this is what they, they tell their people, that ends justifies means. Get in a car, get a knife, stab people up in the street. You know, this is the mentality of the enemy. So we need to be aware of how the enemy thinks, how they behave, how they want us to do certain things, overreact, react in negative ways. You know, that we have to be aware of this and, and respond to it appropriately. You were uh, radicalized as a young man. So what's the frame of mind of a radicalized young person today who's going to say, look, I'm doing what Islam wants me to do, uh, requires me to do. What's the frame of mind? What's the state of mind of, yeah, of that young person? Is, you know, when we say people are fanatical, right, this is where they come to believe in their thing, like, no matter what. Right? They're so into what they believe and, and forget everyone else. I mean, this is part of the human journey, right? A lot of people go through that. So we say in radicalization studies, most radicalized people don't ever become violent extremists. Right? This is something. So when we say there are all these radicalized people, we should keep in mind that doesn't mean they're all violent. The problem is which ones are going to be violent, right? Because out of 10, let's say, they all show the same signs, you know, closed circle, very black and white thinking, you know, the other, whoever the other is, is the complete enemy. There's a dehumanization of the enemy, and that's when you can commit violence on human beings. So that's, that's the process. Those are the things that there's an interplay between ideology and grievances, right? I mean, in the discussion on radicalization, we have to talk about, you know, wars in the Muslim world, right? Like bombing countries, and that radicalizes people. So there's an interplay. There's an interplay with people who are using Islam as a costume uh, just to be, you know, the most evil people they can be. And so we need to be, 
you know, in one rank fighting the enemy. What should happen to individuals who have been, uh, who volunteered to join ISIS and now come back to Canada? I understand there's about 60 of them. What should happen? Yeah, look, there's, there's different things. You can put them through a spectrum of behaviors and activities that they've done. Some were, you know, active combatants. Others were on the fringes for whatever reason. We would need to know why. You know, when these guys go over, they're asked to be a suicide bomber, right? Why does that guy say no, for example, or versus why a guy says yes? Now, the guy who says no, well, what does he end up doing? You know, it's funny. They all claim to be cooks, right? So we, we have to really, you know, uh, go through them fiber by fiber. There is a tactical interrogation approach that, that I've been employing. I, I train agencies on how to do these things where you can find out quite a bit. And there's a number of things you can do. You can put them on a peace bond, you know, make them do certain activities, report in, get counseling, stuff like that. Some guys have to be prosecuted. You know, we're seeing some cases come up in the media recently. Uh, they're getting prosecuted because, you know, they've gone over, they've joined X group, dot, dot, dot. So there's a, there's a variety of responses okay. that we need to. There's no one-size-fits-all approach uh, when we, with case-by-case basis. All right. Well, Ben, it's always good talking to you. Appreciate you taking the time today. Thanks. Always. God bless to the uh, to the to those who serve uh, today and every day. Yes, Thank sir. You. Thank you, Mubin. Mubin Sheikh on the Roy Green Show. He's the co-author of Undercover Jihadi, and it's Mr. Sheikh. At Mr. Sheikh is his. Um, I think that's his Twitter. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. In Flanders fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row on row, that mark our place, and in the sky. The larks, still bravely singing, fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders fields. There's uh, Federal Minister Christian Freeland in Flanders fields earlier today in Ottawa for the uh, National Remembrance Day ceremony. Uh, earlier today, we spoke with uh, Major Mark Campbell, who lost both his legs in Afghanistan, and the battles that um, our newest, youngest veterans are fighting with the federal government at a time when they should not be having to confront their own government. But it's going on. But they're on the uh, really on the upside of Remembrance Day. There are stories now about a poll of millennials. Increasingly, millennials are attending the um, Remembrance Day ceremonies. I think it has to do with partly with the fact that their own generation is fighting and their own generation is experiencing casualties. And, and they're seeing stories and hearing stories about their own generation in war. I did notice, though, and it was it was disturbing. I uh, yesterday particularly made it a point to look to see how many people I saw in several areas in southern Ontario who were actually wearing poppies, and it was well less than half. Might have been just a fact of where I was, but I was in several different locations and tried to observe. Could have been any number of things, but it was it was disappointing to see as few people as I saw wearing poppies. Now, on the upside, there are people like Mike Luschiavo, a teacher at uh, Ancaster Meadows School in the Hamilton area in Ontario. And Mike has for years celebrated and recognized 
Remembrance Day and held special Remembrance Day services in the schools for all of the students. And I always get a, a great deal of pleasure speaking to Mike about what he's done on uh, a given year, and he joins us now on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mike, uh, good to speak with you again. And hi, Roy, and I want to thank all the veterans out there and those presently serving for the Canadian Forces on this special day. How are the kids, when, when, if I were to talk to your school kids today about Remembrance Day, what do you think their response would be? Actually, Roy, I'm glad you asked. I got an email this morning from one of my former students, and if I may, I'll read it to you, and this is how she remembers uh, the days or the services. Hi, Mr. Lowe. I remember how much Remembrance Day meant to you. I think you held an assembly yesterday, too, because knowing you, you probably did it. It is incredible how much respect you give this day, and honestly, you deserve an award for it. Least we forget, all the best, your former grade 8 student, Shayla. Wow. And that was unsolicited. That just came in your email box. Just came in this morning. <laughs> From one of my former students. And how old? Do you have any idea how old she'd be now? She'd be grade nine. I taught her last year in grade okay. eight, so she'd be uh, first year grade nine. So you've had, and I know this from past years, you've had a tremendous impact on the students. It begins with the grade ones? It starts in the morning yesterday. We do the uh, JK to grade three assembly, a little more geared toward the primary students. A couple of our primary teachers do it. Uh, they do that right after opening announcements before the first recess. And there's a good Snoopy video, and Snoopy goes to Flanders Fields. We show that. Uh, they recite Flanders Fields. Uh, they do a little poem. And uh, they showed the video yesterday, A Pittance of Time. Oh, they did? Yep, for the wow. grades, for the JK to grade three. Yeah. Oh, I remember I used to speak with, uh, and I'm, yeah, of yeah. course, having a mental moment here, a blank moment. Yeah. I can't remember his name. Yeah, guy, he was the guy in the shopping oh, truck mart. That's yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Been on the show many times. Yeah. But uh, it's one of those great songs that captures the essence of the two minutes of silence That's right. That's on right. November the 11th. What happened then later in the and morning then, as you go through the yeah, day? After, after the first recess, I'll uh, have the grades four to eight come down to the gym. And we do my assembly. I start off with uh, my introduction, why we should remember. So in the weeks preceding to Remembrance Day, I speak to administration. We will do the service on Remembrance Day or in this year, on the day before. Not a problem. We'll break it up. We have a big student population. We have one geared more or less to the primary students, so one geared to the junior intermediates. So the students come down very respectfully, all wearing poppies. The uh, Dundas Legion supplies us with the poppies. Uh, we give a generous donation to the Legion, and they all come in wearing their poppies proud. Um, I'll begin my speech, and I did uh, speak about Vimy Ridge and Passchendaele and the 75 years of Dieppe, which saw so many from uh, our city lose their lives. And we did have um, yesterday... One of our uh, teacher's stepson, member of the uh, Argyle uh, Sutherlands, came in and helped us with uh, the service. So that, after we do uh, my speech, we'll have one of my students read in Flanders Fields. Mm -hmm. Then I show a video, Highway of Heroes, talking about those uh, who lost their lives coming home along the Highway of Heroes. And then my class picked a series of poems suitable for Remembrance Day, and we had uh, nine of my members of my grade 7-8 split read Remembrance Day poems to the class, or to the, to the student body. And Roy, if you were there, you've got, a you've got about a couple hundred kids in the gym, grades 4 to 8, you could hear a pin drop. 
Isn't that amazing? And that's how much they respect. And I had one student, I had one supply teacher say to me, grade six, Mr. Loschavel, there was a girl in my class who told her class, now, Mr. Loschavel takes this day very seriously, and we should all listen and cooperate. And that was a grade six student to her fellow peers, and the supply teacher overheard that. Well, you know, uh, you probably remember, Mike, uh, years ago, I started a tradition at 900 CHML that continues now with the Bill Kelly, yep. who's hosting uh, the program I used to host uh, for 17 years. And, and it started by uh, Remembrance Day came around, and, 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 it, and it was we had our two minutes of silence, and we talked a bit about Remembrance Day, but I thought we needed to do more. Yep. And so just for the rest of the country, we decided that we would broadcast on Remembrance Day from the Cenotaph downtown. And we do the full three hours from 9 to noon, and we carry the full 11th hour ceremony mm-hmm. on air. And what I would see is, and the school boards uh, sent yeah. children, yeah. Uh, a thousand students from each board, as I recall, they yeah. came in on school buses, and the kids would start to mingle, and they always found themselves, you'd see the kids mingling with the veterans, and they'd be standing talking with one another, and then when the 11th hour ceremony began, and the two minutes of silence, I can't tell you how many times I saw little kids, maybe 8, 9, 10, 11 years of age, holding the hands of a veteran mm-hmm. while the two, as the two minutes of silence uh, went silently by. It was they're so respectful, and it was, it was a joining of the generations, and you could just see the kids were keenly interested. There was another time when a teacher brought a class over, and they'd as a class project written a poem about Remembrance Day. And we had them, uh, she wanted to know if the kids could recite it on air before the ceremony. And they did. And they did as kids would do it. You know, they did it in in a rhyming sort of lyrical way. After the ceremony, the teacher came back and she said, the students would like to recite the poem again. Is that all right? I said, sure. Mike, the emotion in the voices of those children Mm -hmm. Bring tears to your eyes. And, and the way they read the poem just made me very proud as a veteran teacher. I was very proud of my, uh, my students when they read the poem. And one even read a poem called An Honored Son, which is a very deep poem. You received a letter from a student, didn't you? Did you not that you can share with us? Yeah, I just I just read it a few minutes ago. I'll, I'll read it again. Was there was there a, a different letter that you received? I have I have no. I have one letter here from one of my former former grade nine former grade eight students. I read yeah. it a few minutes ago, and I had the students do Roy. Um, we talked about Passchendaele, mm-hmm. and we talked about uh, the conditions that they fought in, mm-hmm. and I had them put themselves in the shoes of soldiers, seventeen, eighteen years old in the trenches, and what would you write to a loved one at home? Wow. And I have two in front of me, one from a perspective of a nurse and one from a young man in the trenches. All right, so these are your students writing letters as though they were in the trenches of Passchendaele, writing a letter back home to their family in Canada. Yep. Would you read them to us? Sure. Okay, straight from from the trenches. Hello, Mother. I am currently fighting at Passchendaele, and the conditions are quite harsh. There are no trees, which makes no place to hide. Is also very muddy. We have mud up to our waist. The land is very flat, and has made many and has many craters made from previous fighting. The craters are filled with water from heavy rains and shell fire. Tomorrow we will attack and try to capture Passchendaele itself. I love you, and I hope I can come back home. Love, John. Oh my! How old? Uh, this would be one of my grade seven students. Wow! And here's. A perspective from one of my another student. Now she takes the pro, she takes from a nurse. 
Mm-hmm. Dear Mom, I miss you terribly. I want to come home, but it's all too hard right now. We are terribly short on nurses, and hundreds of weeping, wounded men are coming to me every minute. I wish I could tell you when I could come home, but no one knows how long this war will go on for. The trenches are becoming deeper and muddier by the day, and scarier each day. I want to come home, Mom. I do every time. But right now, here is where I'm helping out to help these wounded men in sorrow. I love you more than any, any time. Love, Brooklyn. Makes you want to. It makes you choke up. It does. It really does. I could hear it in your voice, and I was choking up too. And these are my seven and eight students. And oh, we talked about my, my, my. And the conditions. We spoke about Vimy. And in my speech, I said, you know, Vimy Ridge was the time that, for many historians, say that Canada came of age. Yes. Yeah. And they will carry what you have done and what you do annually. They will carry it with them through life. Yep. And you know what? And to receive that letter this morning, and I'll read it one more time. Hi, Mr. Lowe. I remember how much Remembrance Day meant to you. I think you held an assembly yesterday, too, because knowing you, you probably did it. It is incredible how much respect you give this day, and honestly, you deserve a award for it. Least we forget your former student, Shayla. How many years have you been doing this, Mike? Ancaster Medal, 12. This is my 12th year there. And why do you do it? It's important to thank all the veterans, all those uh, serving present the Canadian forces, that we can walk in this free country, and we can walk out, and we can do what we want, worship, play sports, and all that had a price. You go back to the First World War, Second World War, Korea, Afghanistan, all that they've done for us, all our freedom, is we owe them so much. You make a very passionate and very coherent case for teaching history in all of our schools across Canada. Oh, yeah. Canada's history. Remembrance Day, most definitely. All of the battles and, and, the, and the sacrifices made by our generations, mm-hmm. definitely. But there's an argument to be made as well, Mike, for teaching Canada's history to Canada's kids. Have you ever had any pushback from anyone, uh, from trustees or nope. the school board, nope. for what you do? I follow the curriculum. Like I said, we've talked about residential schools. Earlier on this week, we saw a play in Burlington called Fatty Legs, dealing with residential schools. I brought down 40 students for that, and you preface it, and that's part of the graded curriculum about residential schools. And we talked about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and what happened in those schools. And, and then, we, we, you know, we just go through the curriculum, and we spoke about, you know, for Remembrance Day, about writing, you know, like you heard those letters, and that's part of the curriculum. They wrote letters, so, you know, you know we, we incorporate all we can. If I had a child in uh, those years in school, I'd be considering myself very fortunate if Mr. Luciavo were their teacher. Many do come back, and like I said, it's uh, nice to see them all come back to see me and had one come back down, uh, went to see me last spring, uh, married, brought the baby to see me. I ha- taught her many, many years ago. And uh, out of the blue, she uh, knocked on the door, and she says, says, come on in. Thank you, Mike, for sharing it with us. Uh, Roy, I'm thankful for all that you do, and again, thank you for this opportunity, and uh, I'll be doing this for a few more years at least. Well, if if I'm still doing this next year, (laughs) (laughs) we'll be talking again next year. For a few more years. Again, thanks, Roy, and again, thanks to all the veterans and those serving in the forces right now. Yes, sir. Michael Luciavo is a teacher at Ancaster Meadows School, elementary school, in the Hamilton area of Ontario. You're listening.
listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Bjorn Lomborg was named by Time magazine as one of the world's 100 most influential persons. He's the director of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, the think tank, and he's the author of best-selling books on climate like Cool It. Bjorn Lomborg supports the human-induced global climate change position, but challenges the UN Climate Initiative as a massive expenditure with very little return. Dr. Lomborg also challenges inefficient carbon taxation and wrote a piece for the Globe and Mail titled A Tighter Aid Budget Means Canada Must Do More With Less in Haiti. Uh, I want to read you a little something, and we're going to talk to Bjorn Lomborg in about a minute. I just want to read from something he wrote in June of this year which was also contributed to the Globe and Mail. And I'm reading in part from a piece called A Path, Toward, Path Forward After the Paris Climate Agreement. Now that President Donald Trump has officially pulled out of the United States, or pulled the United States from the accord, it is time to declare the entire Kyoto-Paris approach to be global warming dead and buried. Instead of scrapping over the treaty's corpse, this is an opportunity to try a new, better, and more efficient approach to solving global warming. Right now, the chances of anything so constructive seem slim. Rhetoric is overheated to the point of absurdity. Environmental campaigners condemn Mr. Trump for dooming the entire planet to a fiery Armageddon, yet claim rashly that the treaty could survive without the United States. It will not, and it should not. The hyperbole and outrage can't hide the truth, even with the United States included. The treaty was not going to make much difference to global warming. Its grand rhetoric was never matched by the actual carbon-cutting promise within its pages. A lot was made of the treaty's fanciful pledge to keep global temperatures rises as low as 1.5 Celsius, but that would have been impossible in all realistic scenarios other than a devastating global recession. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Lomborg, always good to speak with you, and the politicians know this as well as you do, don't they? They pretty much do. I think a lot of them understand that this is much more about signal virtue, uh, virtue signaling, sorry, that this is basically about just saying, oh, I want to help save the world. We're going to do some things. We're going to make some promises. They will have significant costs, you know, one to two percent, perhaps of GDP. Sure, they won't make any real difference to, to climate, but they certainly will make us feel better. And they might also make the voters more likely to vote for me. Now, you say that it's time with the United States not in the Paris Accord, not a, not a signatory. And Mr. Trump occasionally seems to be vacillating as to whether he might, or, but I, I just don't see it happening. But you're saying that it, it's time now to dispense with the entire road trip from Kyoto to Paris and start something brand new. How, what, might, what might that look like? Well, Roy, first of all, I think we need to understand how incredibly hard the current promises are. So just to give you a sense, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the Paris Agreement is, is suggesting that we should try to aim to cut uh, temperatures to only 1.5 degrees centigrade uh, and, and not go above that. Uh, if you look at the science, and this is not me saying this, these are all, you know, this, both the UN Climate Panel, but even the most, you know, sort of radical climate environmentalists, they tell us that basically means that we would have to stop any emissions in less than four years. And 
January 1st, 2021, we would have to stop all fossil fuel use. And, and, and you know, that's just not going to happen. And you know, get a sense of how outrageous this is. You know, that would have to you know, stop any kind of heating. It would mean we'd have to stop making uh, the fertilizer that actually feeds about half the world's population, uh, cement that basically uh, creates the foundation for, for our welfare and so on. It's just absolutely impossible. So we've got to get realistic and say these promises are nothing but feel-good claims. And if you look at the Paris Agreement, the Paris Agreement by itself, if everyone did everything they promised, including uh, you know, Trump actually delivering on all Obama's promises, even then, by 2030, we would have cut 1% of what is needed to be cut this century to get to two degrees. So basically, it, even at its best, it delivers virtually nothing. And yet the cost is phenomenal. It's one to two trillion dollars a year. So we got to be realistic and say, look, the current approach is not working. It hasn't been working for the last couple of decades. It's time to look for a smarter, cheaper, and more effective policy. When you talk about the last couple of decades, it's true, isn't it, over 20 years, that a lot of money has been thrown at the uh, climate argument uh, and uh, the Kyoto Trail, as it were, but very little has been accomplished. Absolutely. And, of course, that goes to show that when politicians have to choose between actually making sure there's enough power for their constituents and their uh, uh, voters to keep warm and to be productive and keep the economy going, and on the other side, trying to cut carbon emissions for their pledges in, in Kyoto and Paris and elsewhere, it will always be the economy that wins out. Mm-hmm. And that's why we have to realize the only way we can fix global warming is if we dramatically innovate the price of green energy down. That's essentially what the U.S. sort of inadvertently did with the, the shale, the fracking uh, adventure uh, that basically made gas so much cheaper that they have switched a large percentage, so about 12 or 13 percent of their uh, electricity production from coal to gas. Now, this matters because gas emits about half as much CO2 as coal per energy unit. So that's why the U.S. has been by far the biggest, uh, has seen the biggest absolute reduction this century in, uh, in carbon emissions. Not Germany and all the other countries that are very, very green. It is the U.S., simply because of technology. And if we could replicate that elsewhere, that is get China go fracking, and in the long run, get other technologies that would make green energy so cheap that everyone would want to switch. Everyone would switch, not because of a Paris uh, promise or anything, but simply because economics and innovation had made it cheaper. Do you get tired of uh, explaining things in a common sense way? <laughs> uh, well, it's so important. And look, well, we're talking about spending a trillion dollars. Imagine what we could do if we actually spent just a fraction of that on fixing climate. And then all the other things, all the other ills that are also affecting this planet, how much good we could do. So, no, if, if it takes a little more of my breath to make us spend money slightly better, uh, that would be amazing. Uh, we're going to take a break uh, in just a moment. But one of the things that I wanted to mention is when I hear politicians, particularly as we close in on elections, talk about global warming 
And all of their initiatives, like carbon taxation or cap-and-trade, first of all, I get the sense they don't really know what they're talking about. And then secondly, they're not really interested in what they're talking about. They're only interested in trolling for votes. It's like they're throwing these, these long lines into the ocean, and they're hoping that something very big is going to land at the other end, and they'll be able to tug it on board. I'm just not, I'm not convinced that they know what they're talking about, and I'm not convinced that they care. And that's just my editorial view. Well, my, 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 my sense of politicians are a lot of politicians actually do want to do good. But yes, they also want to be able to say, I've done this and I've done that and I've done the other. And really, it's about making sure that they understand many of the policies that they do, for instance, cap and trade and carbon, carbon taxes, often are not delivering what they think. They are much more expensive and they're actually helping a well, lot let, less. Let me ask and you about that. That would be helpful. Let me ask you about that when we come back, because in Canada, Mr. Trudeau wants a, wants a pan-Canadian carbon tax. The province of Saskatchewan is prepared to take Mr. Trudeau to court. The province of Manitoba has initiated, started its own uh, um, effort and says it's going to be better than what Mr. Trudeau could put in place. He's not going to like that. So, And Quebec and Ontario have joined uh, the state of California in a, in a threesome on cap and trade. And, uh, and you're right. And I'm just going to take one line from, from a column that you wrote, how to avoid the political pitfall of carbon taxes. Something else that uh, was in the Globe and Mail. You write, um, first, a carbon tax has to be uniform across the entire economy. And then the start of the next paragraph, Germany alone has at least 30 effective CO2 taxes. CO2 taxes. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is my guest on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. He's the author of... The Skeptical Environmentalist and Cool It and other books that have to do with climate. He is uh, one of the world's most, 100 most influential people. And um, he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Time magazine said that. I put you right at the top of the list because this is such a hugely important issue, this climate issue. And you're the only person, Dr. Lomborg, and I'm not good at blowing smoke. You're the only person who I've heard speak sensibly and say, yeah. It's real, but the way you're approaching it is unreal. So if, if I can just, I'm almost fighting the clock here, but if I can just go to something that you wrote uh, in the uh, column, How to Avoid the Political Pitfalls of Carbon Taxes. Germany alone has at least 30 effective CO2 taxes. And then you write, or earlier you wrote, first a carbon tax has to be uniform across the entire economy. And in Canada, we already have Saskatchewan, as I said, ready to take the federal government to court. Manitoba with its own plan. Quebec and Ontario joining California in some weird triumvirate for cap and trade. I, if you could see me now, I'm shaking my head. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. And, and look, the reality is uh, uh, any economist would say, in principle, if you could do a first best policy, you should do a carbon tax that fit the damage. So uh, probably about a $10 Canadian uh, carbon tax per ton of CO2, and then do nothing more. But the problem is, of course, that's rarely what happens. Politicians want to do lots of different taxes, as you just mentioned, for, for Germany, uh, there's about 30 car different carbon taxes. And of course, that means it's hugely ineffective uh, for the OCD uh, uh, of a whole, uh, including Canada. There's about 1,400 different uh, carbon taxes, including a lot of zeros and a lot of really, really high ones. And then, of course, while politicians are saying we should have a carbon tax, they are also 
supporting, for instance, solar and wind and electric cars and all the other stuff. Look, if you want to do a carbon tax, that's great, but then you should not do anything else. You should stop all subsidies because then you've already built it into the system. And then you should also be realistic. Even if you get a good carbon tax across the entire world, not just in Canada, but across the entire world, what we'll be able to do is reduce temperatures by the end of the century from, say, 4.2 degrees to maybe 3.5 degrees. So, you know, it will be a little reduction, and that will overall actually be slightly more effective. But it will not be the solution or the savior, as many politicians like to point out. And that's, of course, if you get it right, which Europe certainly over and again have proven is very, very hard to do. Well, if you're, we're talking about subsidies, uh, there's already talk in this country about subsidies for electric vehicles and subsidies for this and subsidies for that. You write, in Norway, one study shows the subsidy for electric cars reaches $17,000 for each ton of CO2 emissions avoided. I can't do the math. Yeah, that's, that's, that's just outstandingly ineffective. You know, electric cars have become this incredibly symbol-laden uh, uh, idea where you say, God, I'm really, really green. But, of course, remember lots of... Uh, carbon, lots of CO2 emissions went into, for instance, making the battery. Most power across the world is definitely not clean. It's, uh, you know, it has lots of fossil fuels in, uh, put into it. And that means electric cars are a little cleaner, but not a lot cleaner. And so if you give a subsidy of a lot of money, and, and, and for instance, in Denmark and Norway and some of these other countries, it can run into, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 per car subsidies. And you per car, and you just <laughs> cut a few tons of CO2. Remember, for the same amount of money, you could have cut about 1,500 times as many tons of CO2 elsewhere. So you could have done 15 1,500 times as much good had you spent that money smartly in cutting carbon emissions. And this, of course, is really why you need to be very clear. You have one carbon tax. You have the right carbon tax, which the biggest meta study seems to indicate is around $10. And then you don't do any more. But this is what's so really, really hard for politicians to not start saying, oh, but I also want to subsidize this one thing that looks really, really green or really, really cute. Well, you've already done that with a carbon tax. Then don't do anything else. And then also remember, this is not going to be the fix-all. It's going to be a fix a little bit. Now, what do you make of Australia? They introduced a national uh, carbon tax. And then, I think less than two years later, the Australian government said, no, we're rescinding the carbon tax because it's harming our economy, it's harming small business, it's harming families. It's gone. Well, it, it shows how incredibly hard it is to make these arguments when you have when you ask real people who are often struggling to get by to actually pay even more for their uh, for for their energy, which is obviously incredibly important both for your economy but also just simply to stay alive. And and so this again shows what we talked about earlier that you have to stop believing that you can solve global warming by putting lots of taxes on people. They're going to rebel. They're going to say no to this. The answer has to be to make technology so cheap that you eventually have everyone wanting to have green solutions. That's what happened with the fracking. You know, if you make gas so cheap that it outcompetes coal, everyone will switch. 
Likewise, if we can innovate the price of green energy, and that would both be nuclear, it would also be uh, 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 wind and solar and many, many other things that we don't even know about yet. If we could make them so cheap and, of course, reliable that they would outcompete fossil fuels, people would just buy them instead. But we're not there yet. Right now, we're spending about $180 billion on subsidies for, for green energy every year. Uh, around the world. And of course, they contribute almost nothing to our energy supply. So what we're in reality doing is we're just spending lots of money and not achieving a lot. We could spend less money investing in research and development. And then in the long run, we would actually help solve global warming much smarter, much cheaper, and avoid the problem you just mentioned in, in Australia. Dr. Lomborg, thank you so much for the time. What we're doing, I guess you're from a Nordic climate or a northern climate, we're spinning our wheels, and it's something that we uh, we yeah. do, and, and we don't like doing, but we're doing it with the climate. Thank you. It's always great talking to you. Good to talk to you, Roy. All the best. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. I like him. It makes sense. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.